are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Calculated, connective, playful. Andrew Martin Smith is a composer, clarinetist, and entrepreneur based in Western New York. His compositions have been included on contemporary music festivals and conferences in the United States and Europe, including the Society of Composers Incorporated National Conference, the New York City Electroacoustic Music Festival, the North American Saxophone Alliance, Seamus, Electronic Music Midwest, and International Computer Music Conferences. He currently serves as Associate Marketing Coordinator for SCI and is a faculty member at the Fredonia School of Music and Interlochen Summer Arts Camp. Our conversation focused on his three pieces, Amalgamation, Anemans, and Hymn. The first question I wanted to... Well, it's not, not so much of a question. I actually, I want to talk about Amal, your piece Amalgamation first. Okay, sure. And I have an idea about how this piece was made without looking at the score mm-hmm. or doing any analysis, uh, but just based on the formal ideas in the title. So, and you can obviously tell me if this is wrong, but materials from the fast and the slow section gradually morph into each other's tempo. Um, in some ways, yes. Yes, in some ways. That, that, seems, that seems like it's a no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so if, can, can you talk about the formal process at play in this work? Yeah. And, and yeah how, I, uh, how does it connect to the title? The, um, so the overall structure of the piece, I was kind of thinking uh, a little more like um, uh, Stravinsky's tableau ideas, where we have uh, a section of music um, that exists in its own kind of space, and then there's another section of music, and it could be related maybe disparately or, or very related, and then there's another section that has its own space. Um, and as far as uh, the, the morphing together, there's actually, there's actually three types of music. Um, so there's two different fast types of music, and then there's a slow type of music, and so it's that churning um, that can make it seem like the fast and slow things are kind of coalescing into each other because the, the second fast section shares a lot more material between the two. Um, so, oh, okay. so it's, okay. it's not, it's not that you're wrong, um, but it's not exactly how <laughs> but I, I'm pretty close to being wrong, <laughs> but, but it's not exactly how I, how I went about conceiving the overall structure, if you will. When I heard the first 30 seconds and then it, you know, it completely dives into the, the slower texture the, or the slower tempo, I immediately felt like, oh, no, this is going to be one of those pieces where the fast introduction has no relationship to the rest of the piece. Mm. But it has this it has the same that like that kind of introduction has the same quality as a piece starting with like a single note. You know? uh, yeah. <laughs> but but in actuality, that's not what happened at all. So I was uh, I was wondering about the, the proportion of the um of the different sections was there was there anything to that or was that more into intuitively done um the proportions of the different sections uh was very much intuitive um the materials themselves however were much more rigorously structured um the the materials actually uh um, were based on uh, some array manipulation. So uh, at the time, and this was this was around 2010. Um, I was, you know, really getting into some of Bob Morris's music, and and um, not necessarily the music itself, but the procedures behind how the music was created. So it was. Uh, it was really interesting for me to try and create a composition using arrays uh, and where uh, different types of arrays, not of an aggregate necessarily, but of, uh, you know, a diatonic collection or, or some kind of tetrachord, right? Uh, that array gets flipped and modified and changed uh, um, throughout the course of the composition in different ways. And so that harmonic pitch content aspect of things is very structured. Um, mm-hmm. But what I did with that is entirely intuitive. Okay, okay. 
Um, can you expl- can you go a little bit deeper into the array and and how that kind of how that works? Sure. Um, and uh, you'll have to bear with me because this is six years ago, so I'm I'm trying to <laughs> to, to reconstruct this on the fly, more or less. Isn't, um, isn't that always the worst when when someone like comes up to you and says, "Oh, I love that piece that you wrote ten years ago. How did you make it?" Uh, let me think about that. <laughs> well, it's interesting for me too because this this is actually the first piece of mine that anybody has done an analysis of and published. Um, uh, their analysis in some kind of periodical of sorts. Uh, I, oh, I think really? It's, who, yeah, the saxophone who did today. The analysis? Brian Koth, actually, the the saxophone player that I wrote the piece for. Um, he he liked the piece so much. He's like, oh, I, I want to do an analysis of this, and I want to write a paper on it, and I want to do all this stuff. And I said, hey, does he does he have a theory background? Um, not to my knowledge. It's not an extensive theory background. He's primarily a performer. Um, and, wow, uh, but, that's that's really rare that you get a performer that is that is that yeah. into a piece to take it to that to that uh, analysis level. Yeah, and I mean, I think his interest and and forgive me because uh, uh, I'm probably putting thoughts and ideas into his head, but it seemed to me that his interest was in taking a look at this piece and deconstructing it and presenting it to other saxophone players to generate interest uh, about the piece uh, at the same time kind of becoming more familiar with it himself. I think that was his, uh, it seemed to be his goal. Um, and so that that's, was, that that's was kind of incredible. It, w- it was really neat for me because, uh, you know, he's, he's asking me questions about various things and, and coming up with, uh, oh, uh, did you see this relationship? And some of the relationships, um, uh, were very apparent to me and others I was not conscious of. <laughs> so well, that's it was, great. Yeah, it was a it was a fascinating experience. But um, with regard to you know the the array structure, basically uh, I, I had I had basically given uh, collections of pitch information to the saxophone player and let's say the pianist, one for each hand in some cases, and so it was a a, a three uh, line array, if you will, at any given time. Um, And then the materials get passed around between the parts, the right hand, the left hand, the saxophone, all of that gets interchanged based on rotations or, or inversions of things. Okay. Okay. Is it, is it kind of similar to the Stravinsky kind of rotational The rotational arrays? Um, It's, uh, similar in the sense that I kind of establish a procedure and then quickly abandon that. Um, uh, because, you know, it, it, you know, Stravinsky's famous for cheating the row in various places and right. doing all these things once he sets up a parameter. Um, but uh, it's funny that you bring up the Stravinsky because the the opening gesture, the opening lick of the uh, the piece, um, since I put pencil to paper, has always reminded me of the symphony in C. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and it's I it, it wasn't consciously done, but the more I was kind of playing around with the material, I'm like, oh man, this is really close in some ways. Um, and I kind of I, I ended up sticking with it because of this whole idea of the Stravinsky tableau thing. Uh, I thought uh, in the end it was a neat little reference, though again, not necessarily conscious on my part.
are you I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you set up you set up a process and then abandon it. So is, is that is that indicative of uh, your your other pieces, too? Or is that kind of the way you like to work? You set up some rules and then just start breaking them? Um, typically, it's the way I like to work. Uh, um, maybe like to work is a little strong. Uh, it's usually the way things unfold. Um, I, <laughs> ideally, in my brain, I, I'm always looking for this process that is... Uh, you know, that one equation that'll that'll tell us the meaning of the whole universe. Right. Uh, I, I'm looking for that one process that'll that'll have uh, not spit out a piece, but will will lend itself to the construction of a piece. And I don't I don't necessarily think it's possible, but it's an ideal to strive for. So my I'm always striving for that ideal algorithm for the compositional process that I that I'm doing. And invariably, inevitably, uh, I'll end up having to modify it uh, due to some constraint, either being time or, uh, or the materials themselves are taking me in a direction that I hadn't anticipated, but I, I'm really enjoying, so I kind of let it, let it go. Okay. Yeah, that's... Uh, I always have, like, because I'm, I'm, a big, uh, I'm a big kind of rule creator yeah. as well. Yeah. And the thing is, I have so much guilt when I when I go to break something because I think ideally I want like much like you I want to just create the the conditions Mm -hmm. where this piece can just come about naturally yeah based based on the on those conditions completely and you know it's like it's like building you know building a system or building Mm -hmm. a building a world it's like, oh, I didn't quite get it right. And I but I have so much guilt to just kind of stick with it and see where it takes me. <laughs> you and, know what I mean? And and I don't know, often uh, you know, and this is this is something that we hear a lot from uh mentors and colleagues, but very often those those little detours are are quite uh, striking. Um and and give their own character and nuance to the piece that might not have been in the original algorithm. Although you know we're still looking for ways of building that into our <laughs> building that into our system, right? Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, especially when you're I I, I find that um, the more I try and come up with a system that operates on all levels the less and less I like the outcome. Wherein if I have, let's say, 60% of the materials or even as low as 40 or 30% of the materials structured in some kind of algorithmic way, and then the rest of it is open to interpretation and flexibility and intuition, I always find that I get the best results from that kind of ratio, if you will. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, all of this is sort of related to that, that first adjective I gave you, uh, what was it, calculated? Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, yeah. very calculated in that way, and it's funny that uh, we're talking about amalgamation first because all of the all of the tempos between the various sections uh, are are um, proportional, so that there's metric modulations all over that that particular piece. I think another way of thinking about it is, if you allow the system to run its course, and th- and this is kind of what you know, what I've been going through kind of recently is that I felt like I was in such a, such a rut with, with certain aspects of, of music creation, namely harmony and just pitch choices that I, I was actually kind of into letting the system give me results that I didn't necessarily like at at the first listen mm-hmm. and bec- and you know i was kind of just trusting in the process that oh if i don't like this then it's probably good for me mm. to kind of break me out of this uh, out of this kind of perpetual you know the, these these harmonies that keep showing up or these or these gestures that keep showing up yeah that if I can, if I can just trust in the process, that it will open me up to to an avenue that in the future I can 
I can be comfortable going down. Yeah, and you know we're we're never going to escape. I, at least I don't think we're ever going to escape the uh, the idiosyncrasies of our own kind of hearing and language and and the things that we like. Uh, we tend to like those throughout, and I you know I find myself doing things. Uh, in my compositions that you know I've I've enjoyed from the beginning, but maybe with uh, a, a different perspective and and a lot more uh, um, knowledge and training and all these other things, a lot more baggage associated with them, and I, I see it from a different perspective, which is kind of nice. And and maybe you know we avoid some of them, or maybe we choose to bring out those little idiosyncrasies in the in a in a particular moment. Um, but. The idea of the thing you're talking about where we seem burdened by the, the um, what is it, our, our inability to make a decision. And, and when it comes right down to it, uh, as composers, it's, it's all about making choices. I guess as any artist, it's all about making a decision and, and running with it. And, uh, and we reach a moment where we either get... Uh, uh, locked in some kind of fear loop when we're dealing with choice overload we have too many choices to make or or there's something <laughs> yeah. where you know and and you know there's all sorts of discussions and articles and ted talks about how, how to mitigate choice overload um and they always start out with well don't have as many things to choose from right and that's that's where we sure that's where we get to uh, uh, to you know narrowing our focus for, from the very beginning. I think this was in a previous podcast. Maybe it was even with uh, with Carter that you were talking about um, that you you start a piece and immediately once you have the instrumentation, you've you've limited yourself there. That's the less amount of choices you have to make, and it it automatically starts guiding you down a path. And that's where I like the idea of using algorithms and processes because they have this inherent limiting factor built into the process that forces you to adapt and overcome and or experience things that you're right, we might not have uh, been inclined to explore before. Right, 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 right. So we met at the Mackham New Music Festival at BGSU in in 2012, uh, when I when I had a piece on that on that festival. Yes, and, and I was your liaison. And, <laughs> yeah, and I think we both thought it was hilarious that I needed a liaison, considering I had just come from the university. How many years uh, previous? Let's say I graduated in uh, two, 2007. So I was I was. Five years out, but still, it's like I had lived there for four years of my life. But at the same time, I was actually very appreciative of of the fact that, you know, I had someone that be, because, you know, after five years, I didn't know a single like student there. Right. You know, of course, right. I, uh, of course, I knew a lot of the professors still and I had that connection, but I didn't know a single student. And, you know, at that time I was I was a doctoral student at Rice and it's like, you know, I don't want to just hang around like bum around with the professors and they don't want to bum around with me. So <laughs> it's like it was it was nice. And that in you you really introduced me to a lot of the people that I still know from BG. So um, like like uh, Noah Evan and um, well, I had already I had already known Mark uh, Mark Cook from. Mm -hmm. Arizona, but yeah. you know your wife Jamie and, and a bunch of other of the performers and composers. So, I'm I'm just curious, uh, what was what was your BG experience like? Um, my BG experience, I have to say, was probably the best thing that could have happened to me, um, given where I was uh, as a musician when I entered the program and and what, uh, you know, through the exposure and the experiences at BG, uh, who I ended up becoming as a musician. I think it was it was very fortunate that uh, that all happened. Um, so I ended up going to BG uh, as a master's student in composition and did the two years for that that degree and just you know with all of the composers coming in and out of that institution uh, with the new music festival and the mid-american center for contemporary music's forefront series i mean just the amount of contemporary music happening in bowling green ohio uh is just uh quite incredible to think about and so the, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. no one no one gets that fact that bg is this is just this center of new music everyone's like 
You went to Bowling Green? Is that in Kentucky? Like, right, no. right, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's this huge center of new music. I can't believe you've never heard of it, you know? And it, it's one of those things where it, it's a bit of a mecca. Uh, hopefully that's not uh, <laughs> religiously problematic, but it is really this this oasis. Maybe that's a better thing in the in the Midwest for contemporary music. And the fact that the faculty there is so very, uh, not only supportive, but uh, but downright insistent in some cases that their students engage with uh, 20th and 21st century art. Um, I think it's, it's a great environment for a young composer. So you just, you just brought up uh, a word that I was, I was actually, you know, curious to, curious to find out about. I want to talk about your, uh, your choral piece, Hymn. Oh, okay. Uh, next. And so compared to the other pieces that we've heard, uh, this is a fairly big departure, isn't it? Sure, I suppose. Although I'm not okay. If if it's if it's not a departure, how do how do you see the um, like? Where is the connective tissue between this and and something like animans or amalgamation? Um, I think now this the, it seems like I, I, I agree with you, I think the problem I'm having is that I don't necessarily know what type of sound I am as a composer. Um, if I don't know if that makes sense or not, but the idea of having some kind of aesthetic sound to all of my pieces um, is not actually something that I'm really interested in. I'm, I'm much more interested in how the pieces come about and whether or not the pieces kind of function in the moment uh, for what they were created to do. And so when I, when I listen, and you're not the first one to, to say this by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you know, I've had have numerous people come up and say, oh, you know, this piece of yours sounds nothing like this other piece of yours. And they're, right. on, the, and they're on the same concert or the same festival. I think one of the most memorable moments was, um, was actually not with my music itself, but uh, with being compared to Jamie's, my wife's. Um, and uh, this person came up to both of us after a concert where our pieces were, were performed and uh, they basically said, oh, to Jamie, I love your music. And then they looked at me and said, and Andrew, I love your music too, but, but I don't get it. They're so musically incompatible from each other. And, and I, I, kind of, I kind of look at the musically incompatible relationship of my own pieces to each other and saying, wow, some, someone could think that on the surface, these pieces are actually quite, uh, quite disparate. But what's behind them is very much the same. I mean, if we're if we're talking about calculated and connective and playful and, and really rigorously structured, him has all of those things in spades, just using maybe, um, oh, a more traditional uh, presentation of materials. And that's that's going to come back to haunt me. <laughs> that phrase. Yes, yes. Um but the piece him was designed to be performed by a trained amateur group of singers. So when you're writing for a choir that uh, speaking of limitations that immediately uh, gives you several. Um, I mean, sure, w- and, yeah. and writing for a group of trained amateurs uh, gives you several more on top of that. Um, and so there were things that I knew I wanted to do with the sound of the piece to serve that particular function and to serve that particular environment. But there are also things that, that I've done with the piece, which you, you wouldn't be able to tell from listening to it, uh, or maybe in some cases you could, but, uh, there's, there's no meter in the score. Everything is written without meter, um, Everything is written using what would look like maybe additive rhythm. Uh, and so there are things that would end up being uh, quite interesting for uh, an amateur choir to sing through. And maybe that they wouldn't necessarily have exposure uh, or, or training or practice singing other pieces like it. So there are a lot of quote unquote new things or at least things that might be challenging to uh, a group of trained amateurs um, within this environment of a familiar sound. You know, you brought up the the idea of like the uh, the ensemble immediately giving you limitations, mm. and um, that was something interesting. Uh, you know, talking with uh, Jennifer Jolly um, about her most recent work for um, 
uh, it was for middle school band. Oh, right. She, yes. Yeah. And she was talking to me and she's like, well, my immediate limitations were it can only be in the key of B flat. Yeah. I can only use quarter notes and eighth notes. No syncopation. Yep. No ties. Uh, you know, you can only you can only do this. You can only do this. You can only do this. And it's like, wow, that's that. I mean, that's that immediately limits you so far that it's almost like like break trying to you know break out of a straitjacket to get the piece done but mm-hmm. if you can do it that's an incredible sense of satisfaction yeah and i think it goes along with what you were talking about before where we're putting these limitations on ourselves through process or through or or through these means of you know imposed limitations and rules for for what the piece is going to be used for um, that forces us to take a look at something from a different vantage point and maybe try and create things we like within the confines of that uh, you know, material or with that, within that algorithm. Um, and I imagine in some ways that was a dream for Jennifer, uh, given her, her, uh, her interests in, in minimalism and, and sorts of things. I imagine, you know, you tell her that you, she only has four notes to play with and she's like, great. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, do you have a choral background at all? Um, I did, uh, a lot of singing, uh, in choirs um, in high school and in college. So I've done a lot of choral performance uh, and, and I have a uh, background in church choirs and various things like that. So I have, I have a feel for the medium. And this, I mean, th- this, I mean, it's called hymn and mm-hmm. it clearly has a religious text. So is that, is that part of your life? And we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but is that, is the, is the um, spiritual aspect of the text something that you chose, or was that given to you? Or uh, this this piece is um, a little tough for me to talk about, but not not because of the spirituality or anything associated with that. And in fact, the text, while while fairly spiritual, um, it's written by Edgar Allan Poe, um, which is not the first person you think of when you're thinking of. Religious or liturgical music. (laughs) Actually, this this poem was um, part of one of his short stories. Are you familiar with Morella? No, I'm not. Um, It's right along. It's 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 very Poe. It's right in the vein of his uh, his you know romanticized horror and all these things from the the 19th century. Uh, He wrote that story, I think, in 1835. um, And him was actually a poem that the main character recited within the story. Um, and then that was how it was presented in its first publication. But in subsequent publications, um, it was taken out of the story and published as a standalone poem, um, which I found rather interesting. And uh, so I, I like the idea that it has a little bit of a little bit. It has a lot of spiritual and religious overtones, but it's by this artist that uh, we wouldn't necessarily think of in that way. Um, and for me, I was coming to this piece um, after the death of my mother, and I was trying to figure out some way of of paying homage and, and tribute to her. And uh, and one of the things that she always liked about my music was my vocal writing and my choral music. But uh, unfortunately, she never had the opportunity to hear one of my choral pieces live, sung by a full choir. Mm-hmm. Um, she would have uh, she either uh, heard um, you know an eight part group or a four part group that I got together of you know one on a part or two on a part. Sure. Uh, for for some readings or or a recital or something of that nature. Um, and uh, and I did have a choral piece performed in Buffalo, New York, where she could have made it, but unfortunately she took ill at that point and, and wasn't able to make it down for that. So I thought uh, I thought it would be a fitting setting for this particular text uh, to be uh, you know put in this particular medium for you know in in memory of my mom. And as it turned out, uh, the premiere was was just this uh, this past. April, I think, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, and and uh, Vernon Huff, who's the director of the women's choir and the university chorus here at uh, uh, Fredonia, um, 
was kind enough to take a look at it and really liked it and uh, and gave it its world premiere at uh, you know the institution that I did my undergraduate at you know and and not only that but the university choir sang it and that was an ensemble you know within which I functioned as a member and so it, it was this whole pretty big emotional roller coaster ride for me uh, having this piece premiered for the first time uh, in that ensemble in that setting uh, in a place where my mom could have been so that was kind of nice. You know, when I, I think it, it just seems like there has been a history of composers when when sickness or death is involved, it becomes fairly well. Maybe it's not easy, but it be it, it's it seems like composers go to to use, I mean, to use your term, to more traditional traditional presentation of materials, um, because when my when my grandmother died, um, I wrote uh, you know a short piano piece, particularly I'm you know in in her memory, but particularly something that my mother could play, because it was mm-hmm. my my mother's my mom's mom, yeah, and. Yeah. And in the, you know there are I I look at that piece and there's there are absolutely still threads of me in there but at the same time death has I think a way of kind of releasing us from our maybe typical aesthetic rigor mm. to just. Um, go to a place where I, I don't know, maybe it, it's not, it's not that it's more accessible. It's just that it's 
something in my in my case it was you know for for my grandmother and my mother and they they love music but you know they're they're not so much into boulez so right right that's understandable <laughs> yeah so it was it was something that you know they they could appreciate and and you know my mother could play and for herself and i mean does does that did that kind of enter into this piece for you um i think i i wasn't really consciously thinking about it in that way where wherein we have so many composers that we know of from the 20th century where where tragedy struck and they kind of withdraw and maybe that's the wrong word but but they do find solace in maybe simpler materials and i like i think that's it yeah i think yeah. Sim- simpler to yes i think simpler materials is the is the best way to put it because i mean i'm i'm listening to to what you're describing and i loved how you said there are threads of me right there there are threads of you in that in that particular work but there are there it, you are not the most important thing right yeah uh, and and in it there's this opportunity in some ways for the music to be i don't want to say more honest but the music is coming from a very honest place um, and, and with him in, in particular, you know, yes, the, the sound and the harmonies are, are more simple, even though there's some really interesting sus chords and things that I'm, that yeah, I'm using. Definitely. Um, but, but, you know, like you said, within the context of the other works, that's definitely, uh, a little more reserved and, and I don't know the idea that we have this this place this space that is very honest but at the same time has these threads of things the the uh a metric approach that i'm taking the the stipulations of certain types of timbres i'm having them close consonants and hold out texture a little bit all of that stuff is is very nuanced and you know very much a part of what i do in every other piece but but yeah in this place of of solemnity i guess solemnity is a good word Mm-hmm. Yeah. You still with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Sorry, the, the pregnant pause just uh, <laughs> had me. Oh, worried. sorry. No, <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm still here. <laughs> that was a good pause, though. We should get, we should just leave that in somewhere. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It, it's also good for you know. It gives you the the resonance of the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Anamans. Um, So this is a piece for soprano, clarinet, and alto sax. And um, this was one of the pieces I I actually reviewed for for the Music with Friends blog. And I went back and looked at that review recently. And in that review, I called the melodic writing sinewy. And I mean, the the vocal (laughs) line is just is just wonderful use it's a wonderful use of the voice as a melodic instrument so can you you. can you kind of talk about the the melodic writing in that piece um yeah yeah so this is this kind of a lot of that stems from the the training that i had in my undergrad you know we were writing songs and uh and things constantly um you know basically you know one one every year if not semester and and uh talking about prosody and how singers like to sing certain things. And I applied a lot of that even in a situation where the voice isn't singing text. There are no text in this. It's just phonemes. Right. Um, but at the same time, these phonemes are all tied to specific pitches or gestures. Um, and so they, they, I hope, and it seems to work, uh, that they come off rather naturally. Um, or, or effective for the particular gesture that they're within. Um, I am a huge fan of games, and and the, one of the adjectives I gave you was playful, right? Yeah. Um, well, and uh, you put playful with calculated, my, my nature and proclivity for algorithms, and uh, this piece is actually based on Rubik's Cube permutations. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, if you, if you can imagine this, Imagine uh, a two by two by two, one of the cute little Rubik's cubes. Sure. You know the ones that you know, I can solve. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you take that, and I, and I, I was really interested in this idea of data mapping at the time. This was in 2011, sure, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out, again, uh, building an algorithm that could sustain a piece or, or evolve a piece. And um, it's like, well, you know, what could I do with this idea of the Rubik's Cube? You got six faces, that's six different colors, and I want to write a trio. So that means, you know, each player gets two faces of the cube. And so maybe I give them the colors that are diametrically opposed, right? So I have the, the two opposite colors on each end, uh, each face. And, you know, what happens if one of those faces controls pitch and one of those faces controls uh, where they are in the gesture? So if you follow along with this, there are four square little squares per space. Mm-hmm. And each one of those squares is the beginning of or is the, the, the envelope of a sound. So the attack, decay, sustain, release. Right. Yep. Um, and so as you as you change the cube through various permutations obviously you have different colors now on each one of those faces um, that correspond to the different things going on at the attack the decay the sustain and the release and so i had this this kaleidoscopic set of data uh that i was mapping all of these changes like okay who's got the attack is it the voice is it the saxophone is it the clarinet you know who's doing the sustain who's got the release etc cetera, etc cetera. and and the pitch material was also tied to color on the opposite face so yeah it was this um i was studying with eleni lilios at the time and it was so informative i i did something that i guess maybe not many people do uh when they study with eleni and uh and I brought her an acoustic piece and I said, no, uh, this is what I want to do with you. I want to work on this acoustic piece. I want to take your just finely tuned electroacoustic ears and apply it to this thing where I, you know, I want to do in this acoustic space. And it was so incredibly helpful. Um, but that was all the sound of it, right? Uh, every week I would come in with the data mapping and the algorithm and she'd basically look at me and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to pretend I got that. <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm sure you know what that is. And now we're going to talk about the sound of it. <laughs> so, and they were, they were some fantastic lessons. That I, I, I got to tell you, man, I love that idea. Um, that, da- I mean, data mapping has become something that I've, I've really been into recently mm-hmm. and, and. It's, it's nice to hear that someone else is doing it. I mean, of course, a lot of other people are doing it, but, you know, it's, it's just not, I think in some ways, you know, using, using this type of process or using something so non-musical as a musical device, in some ways, is kind of looked down upon sometimes. Oh, there's. I think there's a bit of a stigma with it. Um, yeah. In the in the same way, I think it's not it's not shall we say uh, favorable in this current climate to say you have any kind of stylistic relationship to twelve tone composers or right. if you're using sets or things like that. It's that's like oh no, don't don't do that. Yeah, uh, that, that's that's just, already been done. You'll, why, you'll just get terrible music, right? <laughs> why why are you limiting your, yourself so much? Why you know you you need to allow your allow your soul to express blah 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 and it's like there's this i really get the sense that you know composers that you know are card carrying oh i'm an intuitive composer there there is this certain kind of air that that word creates around them like oh he's you know he's just a mystical genius or she's Mm -hmm. she's you know like and i just and i and i just don't i mean there are a lot of ways to write music and certainly and certainly being an intuitive composer is one of them but i think i think you being interested in these other ideas and and that's what that's why I'm doing what I'm doing because I have such a profound interest in these, in these other ideas that I'm exploring. And, 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 you know, as a composer, as a musician, I'm seeing the music in those ideas, you know, or in, in these, in these non-musical things, I'm seeing the music and that's how I'm expressing my, my desire to learn about this thing or to explore this thing. And I don't know, there's, I, I, I think there's really kind of a, 
oh, that's not what being a composer is kind of kind of attitude about it. Yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting that you brought up this idea of a card-carrying member of a particular circle, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, and maybe this goes back to my comment where uh, I had said, you know, I don't, I don't have a particular sound that I'm going for. Not, not, I have a particular way of executing, and I have certain gestures that I really like, and all these things. Yeah, I have, I have a bag of tricks and some, some things that I do consistently, but I don't necessarily think that from piece to piece it sounds the same. Uh, you know, and I, I get very leery of people who, who are are okay with one thing yeah absolutely i'm i'm doing the whether it's intuitive or whether it's spectral music or whether it's 12 tone music i think i think you know all of those things are valid tools that we can bring in to you know find the music um and uh, you know i i don't i don't remember who said this but maybe Maybe no one, maybe someone. I don't know. Uh, the idea that you know it's not the prophets. Uh, don't don't fear the prophets. It's yeah. the disciples you have to worry about, right? It's mm-hmm. it's the the people who who become engrossed and ingrained in this dogma. I think that's a little limiting, maybe a little too limiting uh, for for creativity and exploration. Uh, if you want to keep your your mind open to all these other possibilities.
So the last question, it's a big question. What led you to music as something that you wanted to do for the rest of your life? Big question. Yeah, you weren't lying, right? I, I get the sense that this entire uh, podcast has really been a warm-up act for the last question. <laughs> <laughs> I've just slowly been getting you there. Um, uh, speaking of, you know, mitigating choice overload, good work. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're conditioning me well. Um, no, I think, I, yeah, the, this is interesting because maybe my answer is similar to, uh, a lot of other artists or a lot of other musicians, I should say, or maybe other artists in general. And, and perhaps we've had this conversation before, but I, I didn't decide that I was going to be a musician uh, at a young age. Uh, I, I was involved in music, I was doing music, but until the summer after my junior year of high school, I was not going to be a musician. Mm -hmm. I had other things I was going to explore. Uh, you know, I was going to be a history teacher. Uh, I was going to be an entomologist. There were other things on my plate, right, that I, that I, that I would think I would be doing. Um, but all along middle school, high school, uh, I found that I was continuing to try and find creative outlets in a variety of places. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to be involved in drama club and then for a time I was going to write a play. And so I started a play and I subsequently stopped writing a play. <laughs> uh, you know, I, ha I was going to be the next uh, great American author. Uh, I had poems that I was playing with. Um, when I was 12, I started composing music. And, you know, I had, I, by the time I, I was a senior in high school, I had some pieces that my band played for our final concert. Uh, I was trying out all of these different things. Was I going to be a performer? Was I going to be a painter? Was I going to be a playwright? And, you know, it, in the end, what I had decided to do was decided to do none of that. I was going to find a job. I was going to teach because I love teaching and I was going to teach American history. <laughs> and that didn't change until the summer after my junior year when I went to band camp. Okay. And if that isn't some kind of cliche, I don't know what is. <laughs> um, but I... I had been involved in all states and all counties, and so I, I had been in environments with other musicians of pretty good performing caliber, uh, some pretty some pretty nice ensembles to play from, and a, and a kid who was from, you know, a high school with a graduating class of between fifty and seventy at any given year, uh, going to an all state or an area all state or an all county was you know a lot of fun because you obviously have access to musicians that you wouldn't run into, but even that didn't really get me you know, into thinking about music as a career, it was when I actually spent a week or more surrounded by other musicians and artists where I said, oh, this is actually a thing that somebody can do. And this is a thing that I like to do. This is a thing that I want to pursue. Um, and so that's that's how I kind of came very late in some ways to to figuring out that music was a calling for me. 